0: to Ray Charles, our special July 4th edition, and we're about to throw to Jesse in a minute, but I just wanted to start always on July 4th, where you should, and if you don't own 1776 by David McCullough, you should. And the introductory line is just worth reading, and then we're going to get into some nonsense about fireworks, and why we celebrate. And this is from General George Washington, January 14, 1776. And he writes in his journal that day, the reflection upon my situation and that of this army produces many an uneasy hour when all around me are wrapped in sleep. Few people know the predicament we are in. And as we learned from McCullough, nothing had to happen the way it happened. And ever since 1776, we've been moving toward a more perfect union. And one of the things that we do on July 4th is we blow stuff up. We love it. From New York City to San Francisco, rural hamlets all across this country, homemade stuff, the real stuff, big-time companies doing it, and everything in between, we throw to Jesse for everything you need to know about fireworks.
1: As early as 200 B.C., the Chinese were riding on green bamboo stalks and heating it on coals to dry. Sometimes, if left for too long over the heat, the wood would expand and even burst with a bang. And thus, the firecrack heat, the wood would expand and even burst with a bang. And thus, the firecracker was born. Chinese alchemists later mixed potassium nitrate with sulfur and charcoal. Stumbling upon the crude chemical recipe for gunpowder. Stuffing bamboo tubes with gunpowder created a sort of sparkler. The Chinese also took traditional bamboo sparklers and attached them to arrows to rain down on their enemies. There are also accounts of fireworks being strapped to rats for use in medieval warfare. A modern firework requires three key components. An oxidizer, a fuel, and a chemical mixture to produce the color. The oxidizer breaks the chemical bonds in the fuel, releasing all of the energy that's stored in those bonds. Firework color concoctions are comprised of different metal elements. Different chemicals burn at different wavelengths of light. Lithium compounds produce deep reds, copper produces blues, titanium and magnesium burn silver or white, calcium creates an orange color, sodium produces yellow, and finally barium produces green. Layers of organic salt and potassium burn one at a time. As each layer burns, it slowly releases a gas, creating the whistling sound associated with most firework rockets. Aluminum or iron flakes can create a hissing or sizzling sparkles, while titanium powder can create loud blasts in addition to white sparks. Some of the very first Independence Day celebrations involved fireworks. On July 4th, 1777, Philadelphia put together an elaborate day of festivities that included a 13 cannon display, a parade, a fancy dinner, toasts, music, musket salutes, and of course fireworks. After a series of fireworks shenanigans in 1731, officials in Rhode Island outlawed the use of fireworks for
2: mischievous ends. No one plans on having an accident,
3: least of all this pretty little
2: thing.
1: At the turn of the 20th century, the Society for the Suppression of Unnecessary Noise campaigned against the use of fireworks, and their efforts are largely responsible for the first fireworks regulations in the United States. Mm, you suck. Yeah. Two states, Delaware and Massachusetts, ban the sale and use of all consumer fireworks, including novelties and sparklers. Sixteen states, Arizona, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Idaho, Maryland, Minnesota, New York, New Jersey, North Carolina, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Virginia, Wisconsin, and the District of Columbia, allow the sale and use of non aerial and non explosive fireworks, also called safe and sane, also called sissy fireworks, like novelties, fountains, and sparklers. During the 4th of July, Americans light about 175 million pounds of fireworks, which is equivalent to about 100,000 lightning bolts. On a typical 4th of July, approximately 2 out of 5 reported fires are caused by fireworks. Males account for 57% of private firework injuries in the United States. Females are injured more often at public firework displays. The largest fireworks show in the United States is the Macy's Light Up the Night Show in New York over the Hudson River on July 4th. The show includes over 40,000 shells, and more than 3 million people watch the spectacle. The Boston Firework Display for the 4th is one of the most expensive shows at a record 2.5 million. The Washington, D.C. 4th of July Firework Show draws over 500,000 spectators as well as a national TV viewing audience. Because the large show discharges over 33 tons of fireworks, several agencies are required to monitor it including the FBI, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, the Federal Aviation Administration, Secret Service, D.C. Fire and Police Departments, National Parks and Services, and its police department.
3: This is really all it takes.
4: Accidents could practically be eliminated.
1: And one more firework fun fact for our 4th of July special. People who make firework shells are required to wear cotton clothing, even cotton underwear. Ah because synthetic underwear can cause sparks from static that could detonate fireworks. And there's a bunch of useless nonsense about fireworks. Happy Fourth of July. And thanks for that, Jesse. And if you ever get a chance, get to New York City, to New
0: York Harbor, go on the Jersey side. Go to Jersey City, the backdrop, the Statue of Liberty, the Macy's Day fireworks. Over the Statue of Liberty and the New York City skyline. There is nothing like it. About a million people line up on the Jersey side. About two to three million from all over the world. Come, do it one day with your family. Take them to the big city and see the 4th of July at its best. Coming up, citizens. Well, new citizens taking the Oath of Allegiance. The naturalization of American citizens. Coming up after these messages. This is Our American Stories, a special July 4th edition, and we sent the crew up to Memphis to a naturalization ceremony, and we met some new Americans, and this is important to us, and particularly to me, my grandfather, who was blessed to come to this country, Ellis Island from southern Italy, and my other side from Lebanon, and both of them, both grandparents would haul me over to Jersey City and have me watch and meet new immigrants, because they didn't think we appreciated anything, we Americans who were born here. We hadn't fought to come here. We hadn't gone through the trials and tribulations of coming here. And I heard the war stories all day. The ship ride over, the boat ride over, Ellis Island for weeks, the processing, the testing, the little bit of language skills, and the name changes. And both sides, the names were changed. Uh, But all for the American dream. And it happens every year, every day here in this country. Again, the crew went up. And let's go to Alex first. Alex, what did you find up in Memphis?
5: Sure. The first person I spoke with was a Nigerian immigrant named Wilson Echo, who arrived in the southern state of Arkansas, of all places, in Paragold, Arkansas. Interesting question. I hope you don't mind me ask it. Is um, sure. you know, be an African, sure. Arkansas? I mean, a lot of the... interesting question. I hope you don't mind me ask it. Is um, sure. you know, be an African? I mean, a lot of the North in the United States, as I'm sure you know, thinks the South is very racist. You know, oh. In, oh. and what's your experience, oh. you know, in Arkansas? As, you know, as an African I... man of you.
6: I have not witnessed uh, that much. People say, you know, especially Perigold, they said, why, where in the world? Why did you end up in Perigold? Why are you living there? But personally, I have not witnessed, you know, things like that. You know, I have met great people at the church, you know, school, and workplaces. You know, not that you can see some, but that one is everywhere in the world. You know, you can meet some bad people, but when one or two people, uh, you know, they they don't agree with you or they have some, yeah, I I, I would say that I, I have had a great and will continue to have great uh, people around me.
5: Wilson actually had a pretty good scrap metal business in Nigeria. That is until the government forced him to shut it down. He also told me how the government would kidnap and assassinate his countrymen who had spoken against them. Given his past success, I was curious what his first job in America was, and was he worried at all about getting work when he arrived?
6: I came here in uh, 2006, September 15th mm-hmm. actually. Then the next day, that was on Wednesday, the next day I was already, uh, I had a, my first job. What was it? Uh, I started with the roofing the uh, building then do you remember when you were
5: paid with that first roofing job
6: oh <laughs> he said uh, one of our church members he actually I was so happy you know he you know he, I walked very every day he gave me hundred dollars he took us to uh, dinner you know he bought me some paint and shoes you know <laughs> I was like wow hundred dollars that's <laughs> a lot like this holy
7: cow <laughs>
5: <laughs> the guy I featured on our dishwasher, and his first job here was as a dishwasher the next day, making $2 an hour. He wow. was so happy, and I'm like, I'm literally making more than 99% of the people of Pakistan at right. this. But, wow. I mean, $100 is right. incredible for oh, your first yeah. day of work.
6: Right. Yeah, he he uh, he was so trailed by the things I did that day. You know, I put shingles on my head, carried up to the, stair, you know, to the roof. He said, can I do that again? I put it on my head again climbed without holding it you know so came back down then put a bucket of nails on my head without touching it climbed up to the roof again (laughs) came down he said wow do you know that you can make money doing this just alone (laughs) so he was so thrilled, you know by the things that i was doing you know
5: Gosh, I would be so afraid of putting a bucket of nails on my head going up to a roof. It's also one of the great untold stories about churches here in this country helping out new immigrants, and you'll hear that more as we go through. Um, I then asked Wilson about what he's doing now for work.
6: I'm still in the process in my school, uh, going to school and, uh, you know, to be a nurse. Oh, cool. Right. But uh, I'm a welder, a painter, you know. What makes you want to be a nurse? Oh, to help people. I love seeing people happy, you know, especially when you are able to help them in their need.
5: Hearing something like that will just light up your day. Um, I next spoke with an Indian woman named Robbie and her eldest child, Malika, who was being naturalized that day. And when, when Malika was just three years old, Robbie and her husband moved their family to the United States. And I asked why.
4: I did come because I wanted my kids to grow up in a, to grow up in a free country yeah. that was more open. How is so it not things. free in India? It is free, but the type, place I come from is Kashmir.
5: Okay, got it. Well, tell, so I guess folks who don't know, tell tell them about Kashmir.
4: Well, it, it's it's difficult to say much about it. There's a little bit of a civil war going on there. Yeah, it's kind of scary to let kids grow up. I guess that's what it is. I guess I'm saying something too political. Is that right? No, You're no, right? no,
5: no. It's alright. Do you just see a lot of violence? I mean, around? You yes, and,
4: uh, yes. We were scared to raise kids there.
5: A little civil war. That's a little bit of an understatement, Lee. Kashmir is an area that is disputed among India, Pakistan, and China. And there have been several declared wars between India and Pakistan over it, with around fifty to 100,000 people dying in that conflict. The exact number is uncertain because so many have disappeared. I then spoke with Malika, who's now 18 years old.
8: I'm in college right now, and I want to serve in the military for a oh, couple wow. years after. And Why? maybe go to law school. Um, I really love this country, and I feel like it's done a lot for me. And I want to give back in, like, whatever way I can. And I know that sounds a little silly, but I also, like, growing up, my dad every day was basically like, Malika, you have to love this country, but you also have to, like, be brave enough to criticize it, to, like, change it, to, like, you know, know what's good, what's bad, what needs, like, where the gap is, because, like, this country has so much potential.
5: What do you want to do in the military
8: Uh, hopefully become an intelligence officer, but you don't really get to pick. It's, like, whatever the Army needs.
5: What does um, this day mean to you?
8: It didn't really hit me until last week. And, like, I kind of started crying the other night because I was like, wow, it's a big day. Because, like, I've always felt like I belong because I came here when I was three. And I've never really felt like i wasn't american but like to have it on paper to like be able to vote i'm so excited to be able to do that
5: how cool that she wants to serve in the military it makes me seem like a schmuck <laughs> not having served but here's she this new immigrant really loving this country I also spoke with Stefan Boy, a Dutch immigrant living in Arkansas, too, and he told me that he was surprised by Southern hospitality and that it was a real thing. He came over here with nothing, and folks would lend them their car so that he can go grocery shopping. A simple thing, but it meant a lot to him. And one of the things I made sure to ask him was how he was celebrating today along with his wife and kids who were with him.
2: We connected with our friends from
9: from, uh, Nashville. And we're just going to party for the whole weekend. Yeah. So it's going to be probably Yinglings and the pool. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I don't have Yinglings in Arkansas.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so
5: every time we come to Memphis, we have to have Yinglings. Yinglings. Um, is it the oldest beer in and America? And it's the oldest right? beer in America. So. Is that your attachment to it or is it your favorite beer? Uh, it is one of my favorite beers.
0: And great job on this, Alex. And we're going to hear more from the crew. And Wilson Echo, you find this from recent uh, African migrants. And I've been doing this for years myself. And they come here and you ask them about racism in America and they look at you funny. Like, what planet are you from? And particularly in the South. And I'm here in uh, Oxford, Mississippi, and there's a, a little university called Ole Miss here. And when you go to the Southern Culture Center, all they ever talk about are the ghosts of the past and this radically racist land. And, I, and mostly, by the way, they're white uh, progressive professors. Uh, but I, I'd love to have the professors talk to Wilson to echo. Particularly about his homeland, what he escaped, what he came to And what he really thinks about the South and about his own country That's what we do here on Our American Stories Not our words, not our opinions Wilson Echo's opinion about his new home his, his dream home And one more thing before we go to break Here's what all of these folks read together At this naturalization ceremony It's the Oath of Allegiance And my goodness, every American citizen should have to read this I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law. Wow. That I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law. And that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law. And that I take this obligation freely, without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More stories from Memphis. New Americans being born voluntarily from every corner of the earth. More after these messages. This is our American Stories, our special July 4th edition. And we sent the crew up to Memphis to meet new Americans, people from all over the world, 30 countries, 70 new citizens. And by the way, if you've not gone, take the family and then let your kids hear the circumstances that brought people here. And let these people hear and tell their stories to you, you tell your stories to them. It's as beautiful a thing as you can do with your kids, with your family. And I'll tell you, I'll promise you, you'll cry at least once, maybe twice. And you'll maybe have more gratitude for all you have here in this great country. And let's return now to Alex. What else do you have for us, Alex? Lee,
5: well, yeah, I then next spoke with one person for a longer amount of time. And this person actually took part in the formal naturalization ceremony in what we might see as a small way, but it wasn't to him. Isaac James. All right, Isaac. Oh, yeah, you did the pledge, right? I did. I did. How did you get chosen for that?
7: Uh, one kid got nervous and said no, so I was up next. Yeah? <laughs> you were just sitting right next to <laughs> him? Yeah, I was sitting right next to him. She asked, <laughs> and I was like, why not? Why are you nervous? Why was I nervous? No, why weren't you nervous? Oh, I, it's something very exciting. It's a exciting day. Yeah. Uh, so the Pledge of Allegiance is something very significant to the United States, and I feel as if to say it means that I'm officially a part of the United States, and so I'm very excited to say it. Where are you originally from, Isaac? Kenya. Okay, and how did you get over here? Uh, we came over as refugees, okay. and so I was actually born in, in a refugee camp in Kenya. Uh, my family is from Sudan, and okay. due to the Civil War in Sudan, we had to seek refuge in Kenya. Okay. And so we came over in 2001.
5: How so, old were you? Three I was more? four. Okay, four. so you do not really remember? I don't little...
7: remember much of it. Um, I can uh, I have pictures in the back of my head about um, just sort of the atmosphere of it, but I don't really know in depth of what. Uh, that area consisted of. Yeah.
5: But, Can you tell me any more about the pictures in your head? From uh,
7: uh, well, pretty much, um, I picture myself uh, just being out um, in the refugee camp, and I remember the huts and everything. And as a kid, I know I remember you know walking around naked and just playing <laughs> around, you know, just doing kids' things and uh, just playing soccer and hanging out with uh, all the refugee children from different countries um, in that that one refugee camp.
5: That actually you know, kind of must have been cool. What's so funny about life is if that's where you grew up and yeah. you were born, you have no context yeah, nope. for what the rest of the world exactly. is like. Kind of talk about that. Exactly.
7: The context? Yeah, yeah just um, how you,
5: you have no context that you know other people grew up in a different way. Yeah, you, know, yeah, you border, don't. That's you don't. all you know. Yeah, so that's
7: all I knew. Um, and that's all I knew. Just that area of my um, and just that area, my surroundings, that right, that's all I knew. That I knew that the world was. And so, <clears throat> coming to the United States, I mean, the United States has way more than what refugee camp in Kenya has. And so, it, it was a culture shock. It was uh, a society change. Um, it was just something different and something new, something exhilarating that I never really experienced. Um, and I grew up in the United States, and so I've become really become accustomed to the American way of life. Um, so that's very exciting. Where did you guys
5: move to in the U.S.?
7: We moved, um, so through the United Nations, um, we were relocated in Memphis. Oh, really? Yeah, so the U.N. relocates refugees in different parts of the world, and we were relocated in Memphis. So they know
5: why Memphis for you it was just. No like- idea.
7: I guess just luck. Very luck.
5: So the United Nations played a role. Did they help set up housing, or where did you guys kind of live, or how did, you know, tell me about how your parents kind of started their life here. Yeah,
7: the UN relocates, and then we got involved with Catholic Charities, Uh and um, they really became our foundation for the first three to six months. Um, They they were the ones that took my mom and our family to our um, health appointments, so they took us to the doctors. Um, They got us... To our appointments with uh, immigration, and so they're the ones that really, uh, really set our foundation here on the United States, and made sure that uh, where we were at the moment was standing.
5: Yeah. So, and you were fine after six months; you were stable enough to go off on your own. And
7: well, yeah, life. after six months, uh, they expected us, or my parent, my mom, to have a job and sort of uh, have that income to where she could um, pay for the rent and utilities and stuff like that. Um, but they uh, they continue to check, on, check up on us after that just to make sure that um, we were becoming accustomed to the American way and we were developing in our English and doing well in our schools.
5: Yeah, well, your English was great. Uh, yeah. Do you remember what your mom's first job was when she came here?
7: She actually, by trade, she's a carpenter by trade. Your so in Africa, yeah, so in Africa she did carpentry. When she came over, um, she did carpentry as well, but she's also a cleaning lady. Uh, my mom is isn't the Most literate individual, uh-huh. uh, due to the fact that she didn't um advance far enough in uh, in high school or middle school, and so um, the best job she could get was you know in her trade and then cleaning, yeah. uh, which didn't require much um uh, literacy. Well, she's got to be immensely proud how literate you are, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. She she's uh, she believes she's an American dreams uh, dream. and so she pushes me and she believes in her other four kids to American dream, and so she pushes me and her other four kids to um, take advantage of the opportunity we have. And that's our goal, to take advantage.
5: Are female carpenters more common in Africa than here? Um, I mean, you must know how rare it is here. Yeah,
7: it's very rare here, very rare here. But in Africa, um, carpentry is one of those things that is a necessity. And when you talk about job opportunities that are in these areas, carpentry is um, one that... That is an opportunity. Um, And so she took up that as a trade and really just honed in her skills and developed.
5: What are you doing right now, Isaac? I'm in school. I'm in school. So
7: I went to Evangelical Christian School uh, in Cordova, Tennessee. I graduated there, went to Jackson State Community College for three years, got my associates. Then I'm going down to Rollins College in Orlando, Florida to get my bachelor's. Oh, man.
5: Rollins is in, uh, what's the town, Winter Park? Winter Park, yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> Man, one of the best places in this yeah, country. I'm excited about it's it. That's cool. Um, what do you want to do for work?
7: Uh, I'm a business major. Okay. And so I really hope to go back and impact the area with what I learned in the business field in, Here in the United States. Yeah, in Memphis, United States in general. Um, and really just take back the skills that I have and develop uh, that third world economy. Um, and at the end of the day, if I could get a position with the United Nations, Um, and they have like an economic development uh, department and I would love to be a part of that um, and really just give my life to serving those that are in refugee camps because I've been there I've experienced it my mother has experienced it and we know just just sort of the atrocities that the individuals in those camps have experienced and so they need hope and they need to be given hope and if I can be a part of that that's that's okay with me to give my life to that, and so that's. you're be trying to pay forward for what you yeah. ended for you. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely. beautiful, Isaac. Yeah. Thank you.
5: How are you celebrating today?
7: How am I celebrating today? Um, I have work at 4 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your work today? I work at Chickasaw Country Club. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. What kind of work are you doing? I am a uh, busboy. Okay. Um, so I, I clean up after um, when individuals get done with their meals. Yeah. Um, and I also just do general labor around the area.
5: Tell me about that experience. What have you learned from doing it? And I, I used to be a caddy at a country yeah. club,
7: so I, yeah. I I know the service industry. Uh-huh. I mean,
5: talk about what you've learned from it.
7: Yeah, like, like being in the service industry is very humbling, um, very humbling. Um, I've enjoyed it in the fact that I've made new friends, and, um, and I've really developed my selfless servitude. Um, and a lot of times people look at those jobs as... Um, as something that to look down upon because, you know, they're, they're yeah. service, you know, they're, they're busboys, they're doing the dirty work. But at the end of the day, it's those people um, that are willing to uh, serve others that keeps the world going, that keeps yeah. uh, the economy, that keeps the society going. Yeah. And so I'm very proud um, and honored to be a part of that.
0: And great job on that, Alex. And the voice of Isaac, my goodness, be still, my heart. Something exhilarating, he said, about coming to this country. You don't hear an ounce of victim status here, no self-pity, work. He's working. He's working, he's advancing himself, and he's serving others. And this is what we can learn from all of these immigrants. This is what I learned. I was not allowed to complain in my house, and I knew why. Granddad took me to meet these people, and it just wasn't possible after meeting these people. From the Sudan, from everywhere around the world, more after these messages... From a Memphis naturalization ceremony Our special 4th of July ceremony Here on Our American Stories is our american stories and our final segment on our special fourth of July. newly minted americans people from all over the world 30 countries like over 70 newly sworn american citizens and boy the age range is remarkable from the teens all the way as we'll find out from faith the 80s but alex take it away what do you have next
5: I spoke with a brother and sister duo named Jose and Maria Garcia. They were originally from Guanajuato, Mexico, and their dad was a farmer there, and I asked them what motivated their family to come here.
9: Here, you know you got an opportunity to grow and try to be somebody, and and over there, you're stuck with If you're going to farm, you can make enough to just live day by day, but you have no future, and then if you ever have family, it's going to be the same process. Because over there, I feel like, It's just so hard to go anywhere, you know, staying at a farm. Because whenever you do have a good crop, they don't pay you good for it. And when the crop is high, you don't have enough crop to sell, you know. So I think it's just just so hard to make a living over there.
5: One of the things we talked about, too, is it's it's one thing for the dad to go through that tough life. But for him to know that his kids would have that same awful life on the farm is just soul-crushing and why they came here. Now, it turns out the family didn't come all at once, and I asked them about their arrival and how old they were.
8: I was eight. I'm two years older than him, so I was eight. And then then my dad had come here way before we did, so he would just go back and forth. So we didn't see him all the time.
5: Did he ever tell you stories of when he was here alone or how much he was living on when he was over here?
8: I don't know how much he was living on, but, I mean, he just tells how... he Basically, all he did was work. That's all he did when he was here by himself. Because he would go to work from pretty much from sunrise to sunset, and then go home or go, like, they would go to Walmart once a week, get the lunch. It was just a bunch of guys living together. They pretty much did the same thing. It was them here and their families over there.
9: Well, I think with him, the hardest thing was leaving us. You know, he would go back three months, come back six, make enough money to go back another three months. Because, you know, he was supporting a family and then thinking about going back three months without, you know, you would farm but only make enough to go live. But, you know, you always be thinking about what if one of the guys in the family gets sick or something. You know, he has to have enough money to cover that, the expenses and all this. So it was hard for him leaving us, I think. And it was hard for my mom, you know, staying over there and taking care of us while he was here. Which he would be sending money back, you know, once a week, uh, a certain amount of his paycheck, you know. He would send it back home and try to save the other one forever whenever he did go. And, you know, just making that trip every year gets expensive. This traveling expenses. Thanks to his sacrifice, we're here. So we're like, you know, we need to take advantage of it. Because you know how many people would would die for having the opportunity to come to this to the place, you know? Because it's a great place to be. Now that we're all here, we all... We've been sticking like a family pretty good. So we've all worked better to... You know, if one of us gets... A little money, we try to help all the rest of them, so that's how we've been. But yeah, we always thank him for, you know, the sacrifice he did, because it was a big one.
5: <laughs> Maria also told me that she actually didn't really know her dad until they came to the U.S. From that time apart together, she really didn't know him, and so they were all here as a family. Lee, finally, I spoke with a guy born in Pakistan named Mohammed, and he told me he came to the United States for more opportunity and I was curious what opportunities he has here that he didn't have there.
10: Well, I, um, I'm a physician by profession, and yes, Pakistan do have excellent physicians over there. But yes, there are, the training opportunities are limited over there. So for me, it was a, an excellent chance to come and pursue that and to be more, uh, you know, helpful in, in terms of serving humanity, getting better trained.
5: And we often just think about the low skill immigrants, but we often don't think about the high end people like Mohammed who are already. You know, things like physicians and want to come here and and have even more opportunity. Uh, This same day actually happened to be his graduation from his residency in family medicine. And he's now going to geriatrics fellowship to specialize in treating older people. And we next spoke about the differences between the United States and Pakistan. And he first told me how much he enjoys exploring nature here and that there's much more to explore. An answer that I was not expecting. And then Mohammed said this.
10: There are several things that you cannot say openly, like, you know, when it comes to expressing your views about anything, may it be religion, may it be people, you have to be very cautious about what you're saying, because, you know, because of the poor law and order situation over there, you can't take a risk your life. But here, as long as you're not, uh, you're obeying the laws, you can express yourself. So that's what I like about it here.
5: Muhammad briefly mentioned the freedom of religious expression here in the United States, the expression of Pakistan here in the United States that Pakistan doesn't have, and I wanted to explore this more with him.
10: There are different divisions of Islam over there, and uh, it's not that I was afraid of anything, but it's just that... Uh, you know, we need to be more diverse in terms of uh, respecting other religions also. Sometimes they don't get that kind of respect over there, like other religions especially. So that is interesting to see over here that, you know, people can be from any religion and they're being, you know, uh, encouraged to practice the way they want as long as they're not harming anyone else.
0: And by the way, Pakistan has what's called a blasphemy law where if you speak something the government considers false about Islam, Even if you're a Muslim yourself, you can be punished all the way up to a death sentence. And it's also considered blasphemous against the law to publicly declare being an atheist. And now imagine America having this and giving the government that kind of power. So one of the reasons we like doing this is you get to hear about what life's like somewhere else. Talk about the First Amendment, the most important rights, uh, the right to free expression, and of course the right to follow your conscience and practice your religion as you see fit, or not at all. And now our own Faith Garcia brings us her conversation with a newly naturalized citizen. It brings us her conversation with a newly naturalized citizen. What do you got for us Faith?
8: Yeah, I was able to speak with a woman who was from Mexico who became a citizen herself just a few years ago, but she was actually there for her mother's naturalization who is 80 years old.
4: My mom is in the United States um, 12 years, 12 years and um, recently well, she decided to become American, American citizen.
6: What, um, what made the
4: change? Why? Um, she loves the country, and she's really happy here, so she don't want to have trouble back and forth, because she, we have more family in Mexico, and she likes it back and forth, so in this way she don't have to have more issues about limited of time. So is this more emotional for you or for her, do you think? For everybody. <laughs> it was a good experience for the whole family because everybody participated. Even my grandbabies participate. Everybody helped her to learn about the questions, about everything, you know. So everybody's really excited about today's days. And she's 80? She's 80. She turned 80 last November. The first time when she went to do the test, she passed a question, the civic question. And we was everybody surprised because we were expecting she failed, but she knew every question. She actually failed in the personal questions. So we say how's possible? But she was so nervous, you know. But the second times was really nice and easy, and she passed. So she's here. <laughs> yeah. And what was your name?
8: And what is your name? my
4: name is Adriana Roman, and her name is Graciela Calca. Graciela. Yes. She don't have words to describe because she's still thinking this is like a dream. I don't think this happened to me, you know, but it is happening, so it's really nice. And I think it's not just my mom. All these people is here. They go through the same experience. It is a lot of work to put into to become a citizen. A lot of people don't understand what it means. When you tell them you have to learn these questions, a lot of Americans don't even know the answers. They say, what is this? I don't even know. This is history, you know. And it's, it's accomplishing when you are uh, for another country and you become American. It's, yeah, it's a dream come true.
0: And finally, our Hillsdale intern, Colby, brings us his conversation with a newly naturalized citizen. What do you got for us, Colby?
7: Well, when I was there, Lee, there was this guy, his name's Hamadi Hassan. He was uh, wearing this very traditional coat that was some African country. And when I went up to him, it turns out he's from Kenya, which is an East African country. He was born in a refugee camp and he really wanted to share his story with me. He was very eager and excited, and this is it.
11: When I was coming here, I was younger. So I'm pretty sure as I was watching my parents, the process was a little longer and harder. But it got easier and easier, and we, we finally
9: arrived. You know, it was, it was good. Uh, like, what's, what's going to be, like, the most exciting thing to be a citizen?
11: Just thinking about how far we have come, you know, from the struggle of going out and finding food to where you could have a better job opportunities to work. And the food is right around the corner, so you have stores everywhere. Where, where I'm from, stores are miles away, and, no transportation. You literally have to walk 20, 30 miles, depending on where you, where you live at. You know? it's just, it's really, I'm really excited, you know, becoming a citizen. Just sometimes it gets emotional that I'm here, you know.
9: Do you still have family in Kenya? I
11: still have family till today. My grandmas and cousins and aunties, some of them still back there, you know. We communicate, we're able to send money back to, you know, help, help them out. But I'm really excited to be here.
9: And uh, what's, like, the 4th of July going to mean for you this upcoming summer? Oh,
11: man, we're going to be celebrating. Food everywhere, barbecue, we'll celebrate, especially that I'm becoming a citizen, too. This will be one of the biggest holidays of my life now, you know.
0: One of the biggest holidays of my life. And what you hear throughout this entire hour, folks, is gratitude. And you can't have love without gratitude, appreciation without gratitude. We heard from Jose Garcia. And my goodness, he said, you have no future where I was from. It's so hard to go anywhere. So hard to make a living over there. And he was talking about his home country of Mexico. And all he did, his daughter said, all my dad did was work. Sacrificial love. That's what you hear over and over and over here. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Great job to the whole crew. And this will be an annual tradition, heading up to hear from new citizens every year here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And our next story, well, it's about a 17-year-old kid named Bob Heft who designed the 50-star American flag we all fly proudly to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler with the
12: story. After learning about Betsy Ross, you probably didn't give much thought to how the subsequent U.S. flags were designed. It might seem like a no-brainer. Flag makers just added a new star for every new state, right? Well, it turns out not that simple. Each new flag has a very careful design, and the arrangement of the stars must be precise and symmetrical. And for the flag we know today, that arrangement was designed by a junior in high school from Ohio. It was 1958, and America only contained 48 United States. The flag at the time featured six rows of eight stars. Bob Heft's history teacher assigned a class project where each student had to bring in something they made. Bob Heft loved flags, and he loved politics. So, having been inspired by the Betsy Ross story the class just studied, and seeing the news that Alaska was poised to become our nation's 49th state, with Hawaii soon behind... Heff decided to make a 50-star flag. So he made some adjustments to his parents' 48-star flag, brought it in, and triumphantly placed it on his teacher's desk. Here's Bob.
13: In American history class, we had to do an outside-of-class project. We could make and do whatever we wanted. Like a science fair or something like that, you bring the project in. The Betsy Ross story uh, intrigued me. And my mom and dad, uh, they had a a 48-star flag they received as a wedding present, which, of course, meant a lot to them. Well, I took a scissors and cut it up.
12: Heft's mother walked in from the kitchen and found him cutting up their family flag and promptly began scolding him. She told his father when he got home, and Heft received another tongue lashing. I had always been in the Boy Scouts, and I had always been patriotic told the Lancaster Eagle Gazette in 2007. They wanted to know why I would turn on the flag. I had never sewn in my
13: life. I watched my mom sew, but I'd never sewn. And since making the flag of her country, I've never sewn again. So anyhow, we get to class. I had my flag on the teacher's desk. And the teacher said, what's this thing on my desk? So I got up, and I approached the desk, and I'm shaking like a leaf. And he said, why you got too many stars? You don't even know how many states we have. And uh, he gave me the grade of a B minus. Now, that, a B minus isn't that bad of a grade. However, a uh, friend of mine, Jim, he picked up five leaves off the ground. He's taping these leaves down to the notebook and the labeling, elm, hickory, maple. And the teacher gave him the grade of an A. I was really, I was, I was upset teacher said, if you don't like the grade, get it accepted in Washington. Then come back and see me. I might consider changing the grade.
12: Bob arrived home that day with his class project. And I had it in
13: a plastic bag, and I threw it on the sofa. My mother came in, she said, supper's ready. I said, I'm not hungry. She said, what's wrong? I said, and I never talked about a teacher. I said, this stupid teacher gave me a B- minus on the flag. And then she really hacked me. I said, that's more I'd have given you, because she was really dead set against this. Two years later, I'd written 21 letters to the White House, made 18 phone calls. Now, you can imagine when my mom got the phone bell. What's this number? I said, well, Mom, that's the White House. So anyhow, I uh, got this call, and it said, now, the president of the United States is calling you later on today. Well, at that time, Eisenhower was president, and he comes on the phone, and he says, is this Robert G. Heft? And I said, yes, sir, but you can just call me Bob. Bob. And he says, I want to know the possibility of coming to Washington, D.C. on July 4th for the official adoption uh, of the uh, new
12: flag. Bob received this call from President Eisenhower at his new place of employment. Here's what happened next.
13: Well, I've been at this company 11 days. I said, well, wait a minute. My boss is standing here. I reached down, pushed the red button on the phone, put the President of the United States on hold. What are you doing? I said, I've got to talk to you. He said, You just put the President of the United States on hold. I said, he wants me to come to Washington. He said, well, tell him you'll be there. I said, look, I don't have any sick leave. I don't have any vacation. Because you know, your first job out of high school, you don't want to mess up and just lose it. And he said, get him back on the phone. We'll work out the details. We'll charge it off to executive leave or something. But get him back. He was really upset. And we did a lot of military contracts. I think they probably thought, here's this kid that's been working there for 11 days is going to mess up future contracts, uh, you know, uh, putting the president on hold. And so I picked up the phone, put the white button, put the phone up, and said, uh, Dwight, are you still there? Because, you know, I didn't know how you properly address. it. And, and they're, they're cracking up. Oh, my Lord, here's Bob I'm talking to Buddy Dwight and stuff.
12: Years following his talk with Dwight, Bob preserved this historic moment and paid a visit to his old teacher,
13: and so uh, I have the grade book, it's encased in plastic, as kept in a bank. My teacher, he said, I guess if it's good enough for Washington, it's good enough for me, I hereby change the grade to an A.
12: Decades after, Heft inspired people young and old with his follow-your-dreams story. He became a high school teacher, college professor, and a seven-term mayor of Napoleon, Ohio. He spoke extensively, as many as 200 engagements a year and visited the White House 14 times under nine presidents. Heff died on December 12, 2009 at the age of 68, but his legacy survives every time we fly his 50-star creation. And if the U.S. ever adds a 51st state, Heff's got that flag covered, too. Back in 1958, he designed a 51-star version that uses six rows of stars Alternating between rows of nine and eight. This would make Heft the only person to design two United States flags. Bob said in 2007 an idea doesn't do any good if you don't pursue it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from sports to arts and from business to history and this story well it's the latter it's history in the nation's capital the sun glitters on stone monuments to our first president George Washington and our third Thomas Jefferson John Adams the second president of the United States was every bit as brave as the former and as brilliant as the latter, but there is no such monument for him. Yet no one, not even Washington or Jefferson, did as much to convince the colonies to break from England. Perhaps this is fitting because Stone is cold and he was anything but. Alas, we must see that the United States alone serves as the proper living monument to this intense, cranky, warm heart-on-his-sleeve founding father. What we are about to do now is precise. Instead of telling the all-encompassing story of John Adams, we are going to dial it in on one specific moment in his life, one that best captures this man's humanity and ideals more than any other. And as we will soon learn, Adams himself will agree with our selection. Here to give us a quick overarching Reader's Digest-like version of Adams is none other than author and historian David McCullough, the man who's written the definitive biography of John Adams, the book in which HBO based its 2008 award-winning miniseries. Here's McCullough answering the question, what event most personified the life and character of John Adams?
3: I think it's the, his defense of the uh, British soldiers in the Boston Massacre trial. That's where you see what that man's made of. Here was a man who was on the political rise. He was brilliant. He was well-read. He was tenacious. He was a very skillful practicing lawyer, and young still. And then the soldiers were captured, and they were everybody in the whole Commonwealth were looking forward to the, having them executed but they had to be represented in the trial and no one would represent them. No one would defend them. And Adam said, if we really believe that everybody deserves a legal defense in a trial, we better live up to what we say we believe. I'll defend them. And he did so certain that it was going to ruin any ambitions he had to play a part. And he had a terrific wife. He's the only founding father. Most people don't know this, but I think it's so important. The only founding father who never owned a slave as a matter of principle. And his wife felt the same way. She saw that slavery was a sin, evil, unjust, un-American. And they never changed in that point of view whatsoever.
0: Let's now take a deep dive into the story of John Adams and his legendary defense of the British soldiers at the 1770 trial of the Boston Massacre. Here's Greg Henry.
12: It takes slightly more than four decades from the first rumblings of discontent for the 13 loosely aligned colonies comprising New England to be transformed into one of the largest and most prosperous nations on earth. It starts with a simple idea that all men deserve to be treated equally and becomes the great experiment that will change the world. But before the anger of colonial Americans boils over into the most epic of revolutions, it begins as a daily struggle. In all 13 colonies under British rule, at the epicenter of this struggle is the seaport city of Boston. By 1760, 130 years after being founded by the Puritans, Boston is thriving. While in theory its commerce is regulated by the British trade laws, in fact, these laws are rarely enforced. That changes in 1761 with England's economy struggling thanks to the 10,000 British troops protecting their American colonies from the French. Here's historian Andrew O'Shaughnessy and screenwriter of the 2008 HBO miniseries John Adams, Kirk Ellis.
3: The reason that they taxed America was because of the
2: French and Indian War. It so bankrupted the British Treasury that there had to be ways in which they could make up for this lost revenue. And they decided to tax the colonies.
12: But, as they've always done, Americans ignore the taxes. So Britain takes action. New tax laws and anti-smuggling searches turn revenue collection into combative encounters. Here's historian Andrew Nelson.
14: And this includes something called the Writs of Assistance, which is essentially a warrant where the British can search anyone's property freely.
12: The British Army is no longer in America to protect colonists, it has become an occupying force. Along with invasive laws allowing search and seizure, England responds with the Stamp Act of 1765 a broad tax targeting every American colonist.
14: The Stamp Act required that all official correspondence, from newspapers to documentation, even playing cards, had to be produced on paper that bore an official stamp purchased from a customs agent. Even though it isn't described as a tax, it is, of course, a tax. And this leads to opposition.
12: When most people think of the Founding Fathers, They envisioned wig wearing politicians debating on the floor of some legislative body, but they in fact did their organizing in a bar, a tavern in Boston called the Green Dragon. The Boston Tea Party was planned here, and Paul Revere was sent from the Green Dragon to Lexington on his famous ride. It is here where their fight begins, not yet for independence, but for the equal treatment under the law as the British citizens they believe they are. Behind the power of these laws, English customs agents begin ransacking homes and businesses. A group of patriots formed to fight British oppression, most notably the Stamp Act. They call themselves the Sons of Liberty.
2: Sons of Liberty is an association of men who are looking to prompt situations that will lead to a disturbance that will force the attention of the Crown. The Sons of Liberty weren't just in Boston. They were very quickly organized and strewn throughout the original 13 colonies.
12: The founder of what could be called General of the Sons of Liberty is John Adams' cousin, 43-year-old Samuel Adams. Here's colonial historian Marvin Kitman.
10: Sam Adams was a real rebel with a cause, and the reason for it was in his personal life. He had been a failure in everything that he did until the revolution. His father gave him a lot of money to start a business. He lost all the money. He's one of these people who become obsessed with a cause and just put their personal life aside.
12: If Sam Adams is the general of the Sons of Liberty, his colonels are John Hancock, the wealthiest man in Boston and the second wealthiest in the colonies, and goldsmith Paul Revere. Legend relegates Revere as a mere lookout who shouts from the top of a horse. But Paul Revere is both a salesman and a strategist a multi-talented patriot who organizes tough men into a force for liberty. As the atmosphere in Boston turns incendiary, Paul Revere leads something of a guerrilla army that uses tactics of fear and violence intent on intimidating the king's tax collectors out of existence. What is known as the Stamp Act riots spread quickly throughout the 13 colonies. Here's historian extraordinaire Tony Williams.
3: They were
14: tearing down the stamp collectors' homes. They were burning these customs officials and the royal governor in effigy. And so there's a great deal of popular enthusiasm and even violence.
12: The Stamp Act riots renders the man enforcing British rule in Massachusetts, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, powerless to collect taxes. With no colonial taxes being collected, the British Parliament is in a state of panic. Here's historian David Eisenbach. You
2: have to remember, at Parliament, they're dealing with an empire that is stretching all around the world. If they allow the abuse of tax collectors in Boston, that would encourage lawlessness all around. They decided, we've got to make an example by putting more troops in Boston to kind of clamp down on the troublemakers.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue with this story of John Adams and the Boston Massacre trial And on this day in history, in 1826, John Adams died. And as always, all of our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. When we come back, we continue with the story of the Boston Massacre trial, and in the end, a story about the character of one of our nation's founders, John Adam. Our American stories, and we return where we last left off. Boston is under military occupation by the British troops, trying to clamp down on colonial
12: troublemakers. Here's Greg Hengler.
3: Oh, there's no turning back for me.
12: England dispatches this, two military regiments break. to Massachusetts from New York to keep order, adding this fuel to the fire. Boston is now under military occupation. I fear there's no turning back me. In 1768, four more regiments sail from England to Boston. By 1770, 2,000 British troops occupy this city of 15,000. For Paul Revere, the occupation of British military presents an opportunity. He creates a propaganda piece he calls Landing of the Troops. As it travels throughout the colonies, so does the fear of military occupation. With a British army camp in the center of their city, Bostonians have a constant reminder of their own repression, while rank and file British soldiers start to wonder, who has it worse? Here's historians H.W. Brands, Andrew Nelson, and Denver Brunsman. These British
2: soldiers are a long way from home, young men who are frightened. Most of them have hardly the slightest idea of what the political debate is. They're told by their officers, you need to keep the peace.
14: For many of the soldiers arriving, America had been a faraway place that you read about in the newspaper. But when they get there, they see what all the fuss was about. This really is a suggestion of a much better life than America. So desertion becomes a serious problem.
5: One hallmark of a professional army at this time is a high state of discipline.
3: Physical, corporal punishment for various crimes. And the punishment of choice was the lash
12: punishment for desertion could bring up to 250 lashes contrary to popular history the derogatory term of lobster back for british soldiers doesn't have anything to do with the red coats they wear the term comes from the welts and the scars many men have on their backs from being whipped The flame that will ignite the American Revolution is lit on Thursday morning, February 22nd, 1770, when, according to the Boston Gazette, a barbarous murder was committed on the body of a young lad of about 11 years of age. Christopher Sider is a young rebel in a Sons of Liberty offshoot group known as the Liberty Boys.
2: So Sam Adams' idea to protest the taxes is to get all of the colonies together to join in on a boycott against English merchants. The Sons of Liberty proclaims that no British goods will be sold. Not everybody adheres to that boycott. Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty are not above marking that place with manure on the door. They're not above breaking the windows of that place.
12: That dark morning... Cider and a crowd of 60 young men marched defiantly through Boston's cobblestone streets with a cart overflowing with rotten fruit used to mark the windows of those merchants who refused to respect the boycott of all British goods. These British sympathizers are known as loyalists or Tories.
2: Walking down the street, the mob sees Ebenezer Richardson, who was an informant to the customs house about uh, various merchants who were not paying their taxes. Get
12: him! Stopping in front of Ebenezer Richardson's house, the young men begin throwing rubbish into his yard. The rubbish is thrown back by Richardson's wife, Kezia. But soon, rocks are hurled and the Richardsons retreat into their secure home. As the intensity grows, windows are shattered and an egg hits Kezia. Richardson grabs his musket loaded with swan shot and stands defiantly, musket high, at his second story window. He fires once. It is intended to be a warning, he later swears, but Christopher Sider is hit in his chest and abdomen by 11 pieces of shot. The size of large peas. What
3: about Liberty Boys?
12: Most people believe the Revolutionary War is triggered by a shot from a British soldier on Lexington Green. But the conflict is actually set into motion five years earlier when Liberty Boy Christopher Sider becomes the first American martyr to die for the cause of freedom.
2: There's nothing I can
14: do. Samuel Adams made this into
2: a huge public spectacle, and there was a great deal of anger in Boston. They stage an incredibly elaborate funeral with a bedecked coffin that gains mourners as it passes through town.
12: Among the more than 2,000 Bostonians who attend the funeral is John Adams. Here he is from his diary.
11: Mine eyes have never
2: seen such a funeral. This shows that there are many more lives to be spent if wanted in service to their country. This shows, too, that the faction is not yet expiring and that the ardor of the people is not to be quelled by the slaughter of one
14: child. It's in full view, this outpouring of sentiment over the loss of one individual who symbolizes the promise of
2: what many people think should be an independent nation. This boy's death becomes propaganda for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty, and this is like a match to light the fuse that will explode into the American Revolution.
12: In the days that follow the funeral, tension in Boston reaches a climax. On the frigid moonlit evening of March 5th, 1770, less than two weeks after Sider's burial, An angry, boisterous, and mostly intoxicated citizen mob roams through the snow-covered, cobbled streets, hurling insults and threats at British soldiers. Two Bostonians break into two meeting houses and begin ringing the church bells, the alarm for fire, and almost at once crowds come pouring into the streets. The city is alive with danger. By 8 o'clock, two British soldiers are attacked and beaten. Then... A large mob of colonists, as many as two hundred strong and armed with sticks and clubs, gather in front of the Custom House on King Street, guarded by a lone British sentry. The time is shortly after nine, words are exchanged and the sentry strikes a Bostonian with the butt of his musket, knocking him to the ground.
2: The British want to demonstrate that we hold the power, and you guys better do what we tell you to do. Captain Preston leads out the guard, they form around the front of the customs house, and at that point, the situation escalates and a mob starts to grow.
12: British Captain Thomas Preston dispatches seven men to the customs house to, as he says, protect the sentry and the king's money.
2: The more force the British bring to bear, the more radical the situation gets.
12: The mob launches oyster shells and rocks packed in snowballs at the soldiers and dare them to shoot yelling fire, fire. The soldiers with muskets drawn and fixed bayonets are in a state of panic when suddenly a British private receives a severe blow to the head with a club and falls to the ground causing his musket to discharge. In the melee, the soldiers open fire. Just days after Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We will all regret this day.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue with the final segment of this remarkable story and we're picking the Boston Massacre trial and honing in on this one particular point in John Adams life because it reveals so much about his nature about his character and what he really believed in in the end the deep principles that helped him and so many like him formulate the founding principles of our country hard ones to live by at the time though when we continue the life of John Adams, the Boston Massacre Trial, and the story of our nation's founding here on Our American Story. continue with the story of John Adams. Just days after Liberty Boy Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
2: Here's Greg Hengler.
12: We will all regret this thing.
2: The Boston Massacre becomes a huge propaganda effort for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. You've got an immediately famous engraving by Paul Revere. It is one of the most inaccurate pieces of propaganda ever produced by an American press. Almost nothing in it is correct.
12: This is
14: treason. This
2: is an early instance in the colonies of the power of
14: what we now call media to shape public opinion.
12: Paul Revere's sensationalized engraving is considered one of the most effective pieces of propaganda in American history. Showing an orderly line of redcoats firing in unison into an unprovoked and unarmed crowd of patriots with blood spurting out of their bodies. Boston newspapers are quick to print and distribute Revere's version. John Adams is a short, chubby, and very pious fifth generation descendant of Puritans who settled in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1632. After 12 years of practicing law, the 34-year-old Adams is working in his office when a prosperous merchant named James Forrest knocks on his door the day after the massacre.
3: Mr. Adams, my name is Forrest. What happened to you?
12: With tears streaming in his eyes, as Adam writes years later, the loyalist desperately asks Adams to defend Captain Preston and his men against the murder charges. Not even a single loyalist would take the case. No one else would take this case. As Boston's most respected attorneys and political leaders, it would appear inconceivable that he would risk his reputation and his own safety, as well as the safety of his pregnant wife Abigail and their young son and future sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, by agreeing to defend British men who were considered cold-blooded killers of American patriots. It will be John Adams' first murder trial. On the surface, it would appear that the distinction between the Adams cousins is made clearer when John takes the case to defend British soldiers. But behind the scenes, Samuel Adams' belief in the rights of man are deeper than his in the open, rough and tumble political tactics. John Adams was not eager to take the task, but Samuel persuaded
2: his cousin on the basis of justice that these men deserved the best defense. That was an
12: argument that could always sway John Adams. The trial in front of a packed courtroom begins on October 24th at Boston's new courthouse on Queen Street. John Adams draws upon his personal mistrust of mobs to construct a masterful defense of the British soldiers. Here's Kirk Ellis and John Adams from his autobiography and from the trial.
2: He develops a defense that is based on the fact that this was a mob that was created and a situation of escalating violence was building. The part I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers was the most exhausting and fatiguing cause
14: I ever tried for hazarding my popularity and for incurring suspicions and prejudices which will never be forgotten as long as the history of this period is read John Adams' ace in the hole trial is a deathbed confession from Patrick Carr and what was it he said? he said he fired
2: to defend himself to defend himself
12: The doctor's testimony of Patrick Carr recounting a dying man's last words would be considered inadmissible, hearsay, but puritanical thinking gives John Adams an advantage. Justice Peter Oliver and the jury accept the deathbed testimony as irrefutable since it is believed that no one would dare lie so close before stepping into eternity to face God's final judgment. In instructing the jury, Justice Oliver addresses the complexities of the case when he tells them, if upon the whole ye are in any reasonable doubt of their guilt, ye must then declare them innocent. It marks the first known time a judge has used the phrase reasonable doubt in an American courtroom. Adams' defending argument to the jury includes this statement that has echoed throughout American courtrooms for longer than two centuries.
3: Facts are stubborn things. See, whatever our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. We, the jury
12: The trial of Captain you. Preston last six Captain days, and that of his troops last nine.
3: Not guilty.
12: These will be the first criminal trials in the colony's history to extend more than a single day.
7: Not guilty.
12: Adams' compelling defense wins an acquittal for six of the soldiers, and two are found guilty of manslaughter, for which they are branded with an M for murder on their thumbs.
7: This session adjourned.
12: It is not only the soldiers Adams defends but the law itself, which must remain free from man's politics, passions, and ever-shifting beliefs. Far from ruining his career, Bostonians realize that John Adams has won a victory for the colonies. He has shown England that colonists understand what justice means. The trial solidifies John Adams as the most respected and gifted legal mind in Boston, perhaps all of the colonies. For his part, Adams remembers the case with pride as one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered. One One of the the most most gallant,
3: gallant manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life. And one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country.
12: But to put that brilliant mind to use towards American independence, Sam Adams and his Sons of Liberty must first convince him to join them in open rebellion. Because when their struggle turns to war, They will need John Adams to persuade a people to defy their king and define the ideals of freedom and liberty upon which America will be built. Let's end this story with the man who started it. Here again is historian and John Adams biographer David McCullough.
3: I like to give credit where credit's due. In many cases, long overdue. I felt that way with John Adams. You remember the great scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when the posse is chasing them and they're, the posse is not only keeping up with them, it's starting to gain a little bit. And one of them says to the other, who are those guys? And then they look again and they're getting closer and they're riding as well or better than Butch and Sundance are. And the other one says, who, who are those guys? And then, who are those guys? Well, that's the way I feel very often. Who were those founding fathers? And the more you know them, the better you know them, the more you realize how extraordinary what they did is because they were so human. And they had flaws and failings and had moments of gloom and despair, just like all of us. And yet they kept going. I know that it it lifts us in spirit. It lifts us in our love of the appreciation of those to whom we owe so much, but it also lifts us in an outlook on life that, for lack of, a, of another word, I would call optimistic. Now, it's not fashionable intellectually to be an optimist, but I am, because I've seen in my work again and again and again, it works out. They do it. They get there. And if there's a problem or there's a... Over, overwhelming calamity, the nation's whole security and future is at stake, we've come through it. And so when people start saying, oh, it's a well, country's going to hell, well, sure, it always has been, and, and, uh, and, and we're doing just fine. And then when people say, well, the taxes are too high and the cost of this and these damn politicians, I say, would you rather live somewhere else? Oh, no, 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 well, of course not. <laughs> Aren't we lucky? Aren't we really lucky to live in this country? And isn't it wonderful sometimes to be reminded that we are a good people and we've had great people bring us to where we are? Yes, there were terrible, rotten people, of course. And there there were scoundrels and scamps and crooks and murderers. But there always have been, always will be. And just don't ever let us get so down about what might be happening at the moment in the way of less than admirable human beings. But remember how many good people there are and how much progress is being made in our own time beneficial to a better life.
12: I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And
0: great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And it's always a pleasure to hear from David McCullough talk about just about anything. And on this day in history, in 1826, John Adams died, and that's why we wanted to focus in on this one story, because in this one story, Adams revealed his character, also his principles, and we can all look back at a time in our life when we were alone with our principles. Did we compromise, or didn't we? Did we buck our principles and submit to authority, or submit to the mob, or not? And while well, you have your own answers to those questions, but, my goodness, what John Adams did, well... This is the man who helped forge the principles and the principles upon which his country was built. And what a great story indeed it was. Brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. John Adams died on this day in history in 1826. His story, here on Our American Story.
12: For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.